Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Then Again podcast. We're so glad for you to join us. And today, Cinco de Mayo, we have a fantastic topic that has to do with the day. And I have with me a fellow of the Company of Military Historians and an old friend, uh, Alejandro de Casada, uh, Alex for short. Alex, how are you doing today? Doing pretty darn good. And yourself? I am I am great. I'm great. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this subject. But uh, for our listeners who don't know your notoriety as well as I do, tell us a little bit about, about who you are and, and, and what you do. Gosh, my life story in two seconds. <laughs> Basically, uh, I'm a student of history. I've written about Approximately 38 books on various topics relating to history, regional history, military history, fortification histories. I've worked as a, as a film consultant, worked on a couple films, and uh, maintaining a, a personal archives um, over here in Tampa, Florida. So I'm pretty much strongly interested in history and currently working on another project dealing with a television show but i can't say much about it right now <laughs> right <laughs> you're just giving the big tease right now yeah <laughs> so we you know releasing this today when we are cinco de mayo and for most americans what that means is a marketing extravaganza for your local Mexican restaurants trying to sell lots of beer and margaritas and alcoholic drinks. And if any gringo th- dares to talk about the history of it, they think it's Mexican Independence Day. But, but, large, but, but that long is long ways away from that. Yes, long ways away. But that that is not the case. So I wanted to to bring you in as someone who has um, studied this topic in depth and tell us just a, a little bit about what the day is the anniversary of. You know, spoiler alert, it's the French in Mexico, and tell us how in the world the French ended up in Mexico. All right. Well, basically, the Cinco de Mayo commemorates the Battle of Puebla. Now, before I get into the details of the battle, there has to be some background information because a, a lot of our fellow Americans don't know what had happened that led to the Battle of Puebla, let alone the significance of the battle. In 1861, Mexico just came out of a civil war, a very costly civil war. And in order to maintain the supplies and equipment and everything during the civil war, they took loans from European countries mainly England, France, and Spain. Well, at the conclusion of the war and with the amount of the large debt that they owned owed to Europe, Benito, President Benito Juarez decided to put a moratorium on the payments and uh, basically it enraged the, the European nations because they want their money and they want their money now. <laughs> basically so in december of 1861 the navies of three nations england france and spain showed up in veracruz and took the, that port city and eventually the british were figuring out wait a minute i think the french are here for a different reason than we are <laughs> 
So ev eventually both the, the British and the Spaniards negotiated and basically left Veracruz and went back home because, you know, Spanish, I mean, the Mexican government was like, we'll do anything, we'll try to help you out, but please leave our country. The French, on the other hand, thought, well, it's not only the money, but we want the rest of the country. And they started encroaching on the territory of Mexico. And up till May of 1862, the French were gaining more territory and they were winning the battles and pushing the Mexicans back. Well, by May, they had pushed most of the Mexicans to this little town of Puebla. The thing that was unique about Puebla is that it was surrounded by four, I mean, by five forts, two of which in the north, which would prove important during the battle, were stone fortifications on opposite hills. And the Mexican commander at the time, Ignacio uh, Zaragoza, ordered a trench to be built between the hills, thereby connecting the two forts. And the two forts were basically Loreto and Guadalupe, okay? okay. Then, and then with the Mexican forces firmly entrenched in the town, the French commander, Charles de Lorences, was receiving bad intel. He wanted to attack from the south, but the intel were saying that the two forts up in the north were lightly defended and would be easy to take. So he opted for that, not realizing it was the opposite. So there were basically three waves or three assaults upon the Mexican positions. The first one, the French Zouaves, and as well as the well-known and famous regiment, the Chasseurs d'Afrique, or Africa, were repulsed. In the second wave, the French managed to take the walls of Guadalupe and, and put the flag on the ramparts. But the Mexicans quickly reorganized and countered attack and pushed the French off the walls of the fortifications. Then there was the third wave and it failed. The Mexicans followed the French by, uh, by attacking them on either flank first with cavalry, and the second with troops along, along the, the road. They only fought to the extent of where the Mexican artillery couldn't cover them any further because Zaragoza didn't want his troops exposed. And um, many of the troops in, in the Mexican army were irregulars. So they weren't accustomed to military discipline and training. And thereby, he didn't want them to face the more experienced French on an open battlefield. So he kept them um, within under the guns of the forts and later went back and uh, manned the, the fortifications, waiting for the next French attack. But after the third wave, uh, Lawrences decided to retreat. Now for the Mexicans, this was a big, major battle in the sense that they won. You know, 
uh, and especially with the numbers of 4,000 Mexicans to 6,000 French. So it was almost a, a equivalent to the Battle of Trenton, where George Washington crossed the Delaware River and attacked the Hessians in Trenton and thereby gaining a victory. Ten days later, he would also win in the Battle of uh, Princeton. So basically, it was a boost in the morale of the nation as well as for the Mexican army. Right, and that, I think using the Battle of Trenton as a as a, as a uh, comparison is is really great because, yeah, from what I've read, it, you know, everyone thought that Mexico was just going to immediately fold, that this was going to be it, but they fought so hard and inflicted, gosh, what like almost ten percent casualties on the on the French force, something very high like that. Yeah, the French approximately lost oh, about one hundred eighty seven men. And, and the Mexicans uh, lost about, according to some Mexican historians, 50 men were lost. Right. And they think that the numbers could be up as high as 83. Well, and, and you know, just for folks listening to, I think there's also a uh, an unfortunate habit in America to hear about the French army and just sort of roll their eyes and think that they're not very good. But the, the French army at this time of the, of the Third Empire, this is a world-class army, Right. It was a world-class army. They hadn't lost in 30 years. And basically, you might say that the French were the Hessians of the day in military experience and professionalism. The thing uh, is, is that, like I stated before, the French were winning all the battles leading up to Puebla. Okay? Puebla basically garnered a success for the Mexicans but it was very short-lived because soon after the French reorganized and went out and started winning again. And, the, you know, they've managed to take Puebla in the second battle of Puebla. And it was a French victory. In two years time, Mexico City would fall, thereby giving the uh, Napoleon III, the then emperor of France, a position to one of the Habsburg's relatives, thereby establishing the Imperial Mexican Empire of Maximilian uh, I. Let me ask a, a leading question just so we can get to this. So here's a European power, a, a couple of them actually, well, you know, at first it was a lot, but it became mostly France, interfering in the Western Hemisphere, going into Mexico, which is a flagrant a violation of the Monroe Doctrine uh, of the United States, saying that you know Europeans should are no longer to be involved in uh, colonization and, and New World empires. Why in the world didn't the United States do something about this? Okay, you have to put it into the context of the period of what was happening when the European nations, you know, England, France, and Spain, went in to Veracruz. It was in December of 1861. Meanwhile, in the United States, what was happening in the United States in April of 1861 was the firing on Fort Sumter, thereby starting the American Civil War. Lincoln basically condemned the actions of the European nations coming in there and meddling in the affairs of a country in 
the United States sphere of influence, which is the Americas, the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine. But he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't send troops or any kind of force because he had his own civil war to deal with, and his intention was focused on that. Now, it wasn't until after the Civil War that the United States began supplying the Mexicans with arms, equipment, and supplies, initially clandestinely. Then by 1867, William Seward, who was a government official within the Johnson administration, declared the Monroe Doctrine, stating that the French have interfered in our sphere of influence. But soon afterwards, anyway, the Mexicans soon were winning battles again and were able to retake Mexico City and thereby capturing Maximilian and having him executed later. And Benito Juarez was put back up as president of the Mexican Republic. So let me, uh, that's very interesting. you know, to understand that this is taking place in a in in the context of the Americas, you have the American Civil War raging, and just south you have this, you know, this war going on in Mexico that is literally the, the fate of Central America rests upon this. And because we're so focused on the American Civil War, we tend to ignore the fact that the entire continent was in in dire straits. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the, the United States itself was engulfed, and thereby all of its attention was focused inward, you know. Right. Well, let me, I want to ask you, too, uh, about the, so this is, this is, I mean, is it safe to say that this is one of the most celebrated Mexican military victories of all time? Yes and no. I mean, officially, you know, it was around... Uh, May 9th, 1862, that President Juarez declared the anniversary of the Battle of Puebla and that it would be a national holiday. The thing is, is that it's not widely celebrated in Mexico. It's, it's usually widely celebrated in and around Puebla, where they have a battle reenactment and a few fest- festivities. It wasn't until a- 1863 that the Mexican population in California began celebrating, you know, the Battle of Puebla and eventually was shortened to Cinco de Mayo or the 5th of May. And ever since then, it became a a Mexican-American holiday, okay, in California. It wasn't until the 1940s and through the 1960s that the concept of the of the day largely modified now because it no longer commemorate you know it's loosely based on the battle but it's mostly uh, about the identity of being Mexican and that was basically spread to other Mexican American communities around the country now i remember as a kid Prior to the 80s, you never hear of Cinco de Mayo or celebrate it or see commercials about buying beer and all that. That didn't come out until 
the mid 1980s when the breweries um, took a hold of the concept and started pushing a campaign, you know, popularizing the day that is not even an official holiday. Right. <laughs> So, so it so so it was sort of um, for a short time it was a just sort of a celebration of Mexican American culture, and then the the beer companies absconded with it, and and that was that. Yeah, but it's still but now it's largely about identifying Mexican culture, and while maybe in 1863 and maybe for the first few years it was more about you know, the Mexican victory over the French that eventually, you know, gave everybody support to continue the fight against the French. But in time, that kind of lost its significance. And uh, basically, you know, they used the Mexican-American community then began using it as a day for recognition of their culture. Right, right, and and that's you, you know here in here in Gainesville we have a, a very significant uh, Hispanic population, <clears throat> and and on on May fifth Cinco de Mayo, there always seems to be some things going on in the community, but I think unfortunately there just seems to be this this division still that you know the the celebration of culture part of it is generally a Hispanic celebration, and then other people just go out and it's like a second Super Bowl and there doesn't, I just, I guess I'm, I'm lamenting the fact that it could be this fantastic cross-cultural, you know, right. Commiseration. I mean, and it's not. The closest thing to this holiday would be uh, St. Patrick's day. Right. While the holiday is not widely uh, celebrated in Ireland here, it's, you know, widely celebrated as a drinking holiday. Right. <laughs> And as well as everybody claiming themselves to be Irish. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, unfortunately people people don't claim to be Mexican on the on Cinco de Mayo. Unless, I should I should try that this year and see what happens. <laughs> unless if you're of Hispanic background and uh pretty much uh, speak pretty good Spanish. Right. <laughs> Oh, well, let me, if we could, I want to back up just a second sure, and talk about, you know, we historians, we love to play the what if game. And I got, to be honest, I knew about, I knew about the Battle of Puebla a little bit, but I just recently got to go on a trip to, to Texas and being from Fannin County, Georgia, I had to go to uh, La Bahia and check I out love that place yeah it is so beautiful and check out where fannin and his guys were you know massacred there and while i was there i happened upon this little recreated house that was the birthplace of ignacio zaragoza and then yep. right around the street there is this very impressive statue of him and yep. and yeah that he he seemed he was the leader of the mexican forces at this battle and it was an astounding success Yep, he was born in um, what is now Texas, but in those days, it was still a part of Mexico. Right. And um, you had a chance to meet up with Scott McMahon, who's the curator. I did, yes. I did. He's a great guy, and I probably told you the full story about that. Yes. 
And <clears throat> so here's this guy. And, you know, so, of course, I, I visit there, get a thousand pictures of the house and the statue like history tourists do. And I come back and I start trying to, to see what I can find and read a little bit up on him. And it and it turns out he was, you know, he was a general. He was, had significant military talent and led the Mexican forces to this victory. But then, what, literally weeks later, comes down with typhoid and dies. So, yeah. you know, what you, what would have happened if if he hadn't gotten typhoid and had remained in command of the Mexican forces? All right, well, here's another what if. What if the French had actually won the battle, of, not the second battle, but the, the, the first battle of Puebla and kept them with their victories? What would have happened? Can you guess? Man, um, they probably would have taken Mexico, and at some point, the America, the United States would have had to act. Maybe. Well, here's the thing, though. The United States was divided. Uh, I would possibly see that the French, in order to spite the federal government, would have supported the Confederacy. Ah, that is interesting. And can you imagine if the tide was turned from there? Because Britain would have tried to remain neutral and so would not have interdicted any French supplies well, and money coming and into Britain, the South. Britain, Britain was sending supplies to the Confederacy through the blockade. Right. You know, where do you no, think... No, the they weren't. That was private businesses. <laughs> business is business. That's right. Oh, that is interesting. I had never thought of that. Yeah. Wow. So you, you brought up the what if and you might as well say that I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect that's perfect <laughs> oh so let me ask you this before before we wrap things up how's alex going to celebrate this cinco de mayo well you know my background is cuban and we don't have anything similar to cinco de mayo but for my fellow latinos i'm gonna pretty much enjoy a bottle of tequila maybe a margarita or two and um just hang out with my friends that's awesome and maybe yell viva mexico every once in a while oh that's a given that's a given <laughs> i might even uh shout out viva Zaragoza. Ooh, i like that i'm good that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> that's what i'm gonna do Oh, well, Alex, thanks for, for being with us and, and uh, helping us understand a little bit more about the background of this day. If people want to uh, check out your books, or do you have a website that people could visit and learn more about your archives and, uh, and what you do to keep history alive? Basically, I have a page on uh, Facebook called ADQ Historical Archives, and I usually post historical tidbits on that page. and in the future, that's where you'll find out about uh, the project that I'm currently working on. But basically, oh, what was the question again? <laughs> oh, what? how um, how folks can buy your books and learn more about your uh, work? They can Google my name on Amazon.com, maybe books, pretty much all through there. Yeah, I and, and folks, they are great books. I've got several. And I will tell you, the first time I met Alex in person, 
was just before COVID at a company of military historians meeting. And here comes this white nerdy guy towards him that he's never met with an armful of books. And this weirdo asked him to just start signing his books. <laughs> so, oh, I was tickled to death. Thank you for making my day. Oh, man. You, the, I love your books. They're so, I don't know, I, I guess I should say they're real military history. They They really hit the high points and focus on things that are not usually in the mainstream, right? And I think that's, it's, uh, you've inspired me to, to learn more. I, you know, being a military historian, looking at your books, it's made me want to learn more about, you know, Central and South American military history, which is absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, that's all we have time for today on Then Again. We hope you continue to listen and continue to support. Tell your friends. And until we see you again, either virtually or in person or here on the podcast, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.